a prospector in Ballarat. This guy went and bought himself a $6,000 um, metal detector. Had never been Fossakin before, and uh, that's what he found. <laughs> Unbelievable, hey? They estimate that if they melted it down, it's worth about $330,000 just by ounces. But because it's a, a unique nugget that big, they reckon it's worth about half a million dollars. Not bad for a couple of hours' work, hey? Yeah, I'm thinking of buying a metal detector. <laughs> I don't know how much gold there is in Pakenham, but we could find out in a hurry. But it's all good. But it got me thinking, you know. Um, Cheryl and I are going to have been married 25 years this year. So it's pretty good effort, hey? If I don't say so myself. And she, yeah, all, all Cheryl, Cheryl's effort, not so much mine. But it got me thinking that it's a silver anniversary, right? So does that mean the Queen sends you a bar of silver or the government sends you some silver? Like, aren't I going to get rich this year? Like, isn't that the point? Oh, I mean, I'm meant to spend it. Oh, I don't like that idea. <laughs> Pretty sad, isn't it, eh? Pretty sad. The 80s were not good seasons, were they? Eh? No. Got a, got a little bit more weight on me, but not much. Uh, do you like the mo? Yeah. It was pretty impressive, wasn't it? Weren't the 80s so cool, you know? I actually had a perm, a weave perm. <laughs> Cheryl was obviously the better part of that photo. So what we thought we'd do today, Cheryl and I are going to share with you together. Um, so come on up, Shez. 25 years of marriage, and we're coming up for 17 years of ministry. So we've learned a thing or two. Probably more from our mistakes than we have uh, getting it right the first time. But we thought what we'd do is just, because it's a relaxed time of year, we'd just do something fairly low-key. You're going to sit there? No? You're going to stand up. So I'm going to hand over to you, because you're going to do the first point. I've got the flicker thing. Do you want it? You just tell me when to flick. Yeah. Well, obviously, we're looking at this one first, and then we're going to have the music. As you can see there, music has lots and lots of different things. So has good bits and not so good bits, but even the bad bits are still good for you. <laughs> and every marriage is, is different. And um, one thing I, I wanted to share, I was thinking of not just talking about marriage, but talking about, like, young people thinking – you know, they're, they're often thinking about their lifetime's partner and, and whatever else. And um, I, I know I've come across a lot of young people who they look, they, they either say to me, I, I want a marriage like my parents or I don't want a marriage like my parents. And, and I guess um, for those of us that are married, there, there is that, that sense of, well, what are we role modeling you know to our younger people not even just our kids but those that are that are watching um we've been very honest about our marriage throughout the years with a lot of young people and we've had some good bits and some not so good bits but um praise god there's a lot of young people who actually say i would like to have a marriage like yours which is which is wonderful so you know i eat muesli in the morning and um there's these really long hard not in this one but in mine, they're long, hard bits of apricot, they are, and they're really chewy and hard. And the first time I nearly broke my tooth on it, so now I pick it all out. And that's what we started thinking about, how, you know, you want to pick out bits. They're probably really good for me, if 
but I don't really like them much. So I pick them out. Yeah. They'll go on to the next one. So, um, yeah, there's every marriage is different and there's some always things about your partner that you really love and that's what attracted you to them. And there's always a couple of things that really frustrate you. And uh, my wife's almost perfect, <laughs> but she has one major fault. She forgets things. And when you're like me and you're very organised and task-oriented, that's really frustrating, really frustrating. And I've had to learn to cope with my own frustration. It's not really her issue, it's my issue. Uh, when we were moving from Melbourne to Queensland back in 1991, that, that was a huge move. Um, we packed everything up. Remember, we used to have the old tea chests? The, the removalists used to have tea chests. We had about 100 of them, moved all our furniture. It was such a big logistical thing to move to Queensland. And uh, we stayed at my mum and dad's place the night before we were going to leave, and that was pretty emotional for them, saying goodbye to their you know, their uh, their son and their daughter-in-law and their granddaughter. And, and so, you know, this big fanfare, and we headed off in the car. And I think we went up through Yay. I think we got we did Yarra Glen, and we're on our way to Yay, and... Uh, Cheryl had forgotten something, something important. something important, but she didn't have the courage to tell me because she knew I was going to do a head gasket because I was going, like we were going to Queensland and then about... When four... Mark gets in the car, I'll just have you know that you're not allowed, you don't stop. So, yeah, so he <laughs> he's better now 25 years later, but Stay 25 years ago when you got in the car and you were going and we were heading to Queensland, I knew that the next stop was going to be probably 10 hours and so I left this, and he'll tell you the rest of the story, this thing behind, and I was like, how do I tell him? Because I really need that. Like, She left her handbag behind. <laughs> so 40 minutes down the road, we had to turn around and come back, which is an 80-minute loss of time. <laughs> that was his first lesson in patience. Yeah. It's very good. Second thing that we wanted to encourage you with over our time is that Friends are so important in life. Friends are so important. They are so important for so many reasons. And, um, and we've been blessed to have in our journey through life so many different friends that have become very close to us and been very meaningful at different times in our lives. And, um, you know, good, strong friendships make all the difference in good times because you've got people to celebrate with. You've got people to enjoy the highs with you. But you know, it's probably in those really deep valleys when you need your friends more than ever. And, um, yeah, we can't encourage you enough to be working hard on fostering good friendships because friends come in all different shapes and sizes. One of my dearest friends in, in my life was a guy who was uh, 30 years older than me. He turned up at church one day with his wife and uh, he was 74 years old um, and uh and Rod and I became just incredible mates. He was 66 when he got saved. He lived the most uh, rebellious life you could imagine. He'd done everything. Every time a topic of conversation came up, Rod had this story. It failed marriages, failed businesses, had tried everything, been everywhere, done everything. Um, and he had this great, you know, he was like a bulldozer. He left a, a destruction behind him, but he got saved when he was 66. And in that period between 66 and 74 when he passed away, boy, he made up for lost time. He was an incredibly inspiring man. Just, you know, had a simple faith in God. God said it. I believe it can be done. So he started orphanages in India and he just did anything he could. 
I remember when he was about 72, he was a really sick man, but the orphanage that he'd helped start was having a celebration and he got on the plane. Even though he had cancer, even though he was half dead, I remember him telling me he was lying in the airport in India, vomiting and diarrhea, but he wanted to be there because he didn't want to waste any more of his life. Now, on outward appearance, he's 74, I was, I was 40. You wouldn't think we'd be great mates, but God sent different people, different ages with different wisdom in the seasons of your life, and it was really good. So if you've got good friends, treasure them because they're few and far between. And work hard on building that relationship with them and, and loving them. And, and, you know, I think one of the things that, that we were talking about when we were preparing was that, you know, guys relate differently to guys. We sort of, um, I think we make friends easier, but maybe we don't go so deep. Whereas with women, they tend to want to go really deep in relationship, but then they tend to have this smothering effect where where other women aren't allowed to have other women as friends and it gets a bit like, you're my friend, you can't have any others. And we've seen that in ministry. That becomes It becomes quite sad when there's, when there's hurt because, oh, you didn't include me this time. You went off with Sally instead of with me. And it's not good. To be a really good friend, you've got to let other people have friends. And you see it from like, you know, the younger girls' age, I mean, even these ones here would be able to say that, you know, you struggle with friendships at school and it's really it's really difficult. And the, the best thing that you can do as a, a friend, especially a female friend, is to allow that friend to have other friends. And you, and you build much stronger, deeper friendships when you don't hold on to your friends, when you actually let them go and be friends with other people. So I would encourage you young ones, Start doing that now with your friends because even old ladies like me still struggle with that whole, um, yeah, letting letting your friends be friends with others and you enjoy that much so much better. Cool. So if you do one good friendship a year and you live to your 80, that's a lot of good friends, hey? So we'll encourage you with that. Um, this one, in our experience in terms of, of our life experience in, in marriage but also in ministry is that failure isn't final unless you let it be. Um, the privilege of our, you know, our role as leaders in a church is that you get to, to deal with people in, in, a, in a point in their life when they're often really down. Um, and, and really struggling with something that life's thrown their way. And it can be a marriage issue, it can be financial or a business. There's all sorts of things that life throws your way. Um, but a lot of people let those situations in their life get on top of them. And so they begin to see life half empty, the glass is half empty, and, and it's really tragic from where we sit that, that so many people get crippled by life experiences. They have a failed marriage, therefore everything after that tends to fail because they've had one failure in their life or something that didn't go to plan and like disappointment sets in and it's almost like everything that they do, there's an expectation of disappointment. And it's so sad, so sad to see that people let uh, a hurdle or a hiccup in life become so monumental that it shapes the rest of their life. I don't think failure has to define who you are. You know, if you look at who God uses in Scripture, he uses a lot of people that fail. Um, but it's getting back on the horse. It's sort of learning to be strong enough in your own self and in your relationship with God to trust him to use you again. 
You know, you're going to have times in your life where you fail. There's going to be situations in church life that get pretty ugly. You know, we've been through a church split that was the most horrific thing that you could ever imagine to go through. You know, people taking sides. Will I side with Mark or will I side with this person? It's just so wrong. But the amount of damage that happens because of failure is incredible in Christian circles. And we would encourage you that um, you've got to keep looking ahead. You know, Paul said, I, you know, forgetting what's behind me, I press on ahead to, to look to the goal. You know, I don't think it's wrong to look behind. I don't think you can, you know, do a, do an, um, what's his name, Armstrong, you know, deny the past. You, you've got to sometimes own that you've failed or you've made mistakes, but then move on. And allow God to, to shape those things. I remember um, sitting with, a, with a, a guy who's a very wise pastor and he said, you know, I'll never employ another pastor or someone on my staff unless they can tell me they've had a life failure. I won't employ them. I won't use them until they've had one big hole that they've had to crawl out of. Because he said that those things shape your life. If you can get out of the hole and get up on the horse again, uh, you're a much better person for for it. And is it easy? No, it's not. So my encouragement would be: don't quit the process. Get some help. Get yourself in a place where you're going to be accountable. Get the help that you need. Put people around you so you're going to grow and get healthier. And it is a journey, but God will never fail you. You know, success is not final. Failure is not fatal. It is the courage to continue that counts. That's a quote by Winston Churchill, and he would know you know, what it means to be up against opposition, up against hard times. But that's one thing we'd like to say. Please don't let failure be final in your life. It doesn't have to be. It's your choice. I just want to say one thing to that. Mark added this one in, and I didn't know what it was. So um, I was just thinking, you know, the the victory is actually in your mind as well. And so every one of us have failed um, but it's a matter of how we choose to think about that failure and how we process that through our mind. So I might fail at something. It might be big. It might be small. And I might just have to say to myself, well, that didn't work. I didn't choose well or I didn't do well. But I'm not a failure and I can continue on. And it, the, the, the challenge is whether you're going to do it in your own strength or do it in the Lord's because he's the one that actually gives us the victory. And it's from his Victory is where we can live our life from. So, you gonna do this one? Sure. <laughs> the first thing I thought when I looked at this um, was, well, they look similar. They're dressed very much alike, um, but I know as as a counsellor, they're they're going to be very different people. They're going to think very very differently. So, mother and daughter here. Um, that's the first thing I thought of. So, just yep. So. This is obviously raising children. In a war, you don't win every battle. And a wise person told me quite a while ago that, um, Cheryl, pick your battles. With, with your kids, pick your battles. You know, there are certain things that are non-negotiable, certain things that obviously to you as a parent are really important. Um, but there are other things that doesn't really matter so much. I used to work in our kids' high school. I worked in the office of the high school. And um, and one of our children decided that they were going to break the rules, only slightly, but still break the rules, and they kept coming up to the office all the time. And it's amazing how many people look to you as the parent. You know, here you are in the office, 
and your child's coming in. And I just said, you know, it's their choice. They're choosing to continue in that way and it's not my battle. They'll, they'll learn the hard way. And they did. So um, children thrive on consistent boundaries. I think we all know, um, you know, you, your children know your boundaries and they'll, and they'll push right to the very, very edge. But they'll go past that if they don't know where the boundary is. So we've got to really set those. Um, watch where you swing the pendulum. Yep. Uh, your children are not your clones. Um, I went to Kurong Bookshop this week and there was a book on the shelf that drew my eye and it said Trophy Child. And I thought, oh, what is that? And I looked over at the back and basically the book was about uh, is your child, are you trying to make your child your clone? Are they your trophy? And um, basically, are you living your life out through your child again? And the thing that struck me is that God said to me, Cheryl, your child's name needs to be on their trophy, not your name. So they don't need to be like you. Um, you think of like grandfather's a doctor, dad's a doctor. Well, then, of course, little Johnny probably needs to be a doctor as well. But what if he doesn't want to be? What if he wants to work at Coles? What if he wants to reach out to people at the local supermarket? Like, who are we to say that he's not to do that? So our children need to have their name on their trophy at the end, not our name. Yeah. Power them to make choices, give them space, love them unconditionally. Uh, that one, backing onto that failure thing, our children are going to fail as well. And we need to love them through those failures. They need to know that they are loved unconditionally. That it doesn't matter what they do, they're going to be loved unconditionally. No matter what they say, no matter where they go, no matter what they do, they're going to know that mum and dad love them. Um, be a parent first and a friend second. We're blessed to be parents and friends of our kids, really blessed, but the kids have chosen the friendship, not us. We haven't pushed a friendship on our children. It's just developed naturally out of doing these things they've chosen to be friends with us also as they're coming into their adulthood and it's such a blessing to be able to have that added on to the end. So, yeah. I like the second last point. Don't impose your fears or anxieties. You know, as a, as a, a parent, you begin as your kids grow up to see yourself reflected in them and it's really sad when you, when you hear them talking out your fears and your anxieties. Like my mum and dad were never risk takers. Um, never adventurous and always sort of, you know, we never did anything that was fun because my mum and dad weren't risk takers. You know, like we'd never ride a roller coaster. I had fears of roller coasters and, you know, going on fast rides because my mum and dad had those fears. Um, my mum and dad were a steak and three veg, you know, that's all we ever ate. So when I met Cheryl, lasagna was exotic for me. Because my parents had conditioned me to think that, you know, spices and garlic, all that sort of stuff you could make you sick or, you know, that sort of thing. So we need to be careful as parents that we don't sort of create a world for our kids that has these big walls around it, encourage them to get out and break out beyond them. And being a parent's fun. In terms of ministry, if I could say one thing <clears throat> about the 17 years we've been in ministry... <clears throat> is that we have seen so many people take offence 
at the way the church operates, at the way leaders have said something, um, at the way someone in the congregation has said something insensitive. And we've seen people come and go for the most silliest, ridiculous things. If there's one thing that I could change in the life of the church, it would be to stop having people be so sensitive about silly things. And sometimes they're not silly things. Sometimes somebody says the really wrong thing. But then they get wounded and they get hurt and they get defensive and they they leave the church. And um, it just seems to be a trend that's happening more and more in the life of the church. People overreacting. And now we've got this, this thing that we call church hopping or church shopping. And um, it's really sad that in the context of community, and if the church is to be really what the church is supposed to be, there's going to be niggles, and there's going to be people that say the wrong thing, and there's going to be somebody who, you know, blurts out something that they shouldn't. But we need to be thicker skinned than that and to take offence and to leave. Um, There's a passage in Scripture where Jesus sort of says to his disciples, you know, it's almost impossible that offence won't come. You're going to get offended. And then he goes on through that passage and then their their response to that is, Lord, increase our faith. Like how can we forgive seven times? How can we forgive 70 times seven? You know, how can we be people that keep, you know, being forgiving and, and love like that? But Jesus is just saying, you're going to get offended. It's inevitable. Something's going to happen in the life of the church where you don't get your way or the church goes a direction or the leader says someone, you're going to get offended. I can guarantee it. one day Mark and Cheryl are going to say something to offend you. You're going to be standing at the door and I'm going to walk past because my mindset's going, I need to tell Stacy something because she's leading this morning. And you're going to stand at the door and go, Mark, walk right past me. How offensive is that? What sort of a leader is that that he would not say good morning to me and give me a hug? How rude is that? What sort of a leader is he? Yeah, <laughs> that's right. And then you take offense. What happens? You build up a wall. I'm not going back there again. I will fail you. I guarantee it because I'm not perfect. But what are we going to do in those situations? And you know something? You guys will have... He's not, really? No, thank you. Almost. I love you too, darling. You say it. But the reality is you're going to offend me. But we've got to be bigger than that. Uh, one of my really great mentors said, Mark, you have to have the heart of a, do- a dove and the hide of a rhinoceros. You have to know when to just say, it's okay, it's just a mistake, let it go. Maybe I would love Mark to meet me at the door every Sunday and give me a hug and make my world wonderful, but that's just not Mark. <laughs> I need to give him space to be who he is. So please, this whole thing about offence, there's a guy um, called John Bevere who wrote a, a book about it. He calls it The Bait of Satan. It's what Satan loves to do. He loves us to feel offended. And then when we're offended, we get bitter and we won't forgive and then we get ourselves in this rut. And what do we do? We pack up our bags and we go and find somewhere else where we try to find the perfect place, perfect congregation, perfect church. It's going to happen again. It's inevitable. And uh, I read an article a couple of weeks ago which I thought was quite profound. It was like the the trend has been to have big mega churches. And in big mega churches, um, you don't get offended as much because you don't get into the nitty-gritty of relationships so much. Like if two families leave Catalyst, that's a huge thing. It's going to create a huge shockwave through our church. Why did they leave? What's wrong? But if you're two families in a church of 800, it doesn't matter if two families go, does it? 
And it's really saying that in community, in close community, we have to work through those things. It's actually a good thing to wrestle with how we get hurt and why we get hurt and um, to work those things through and to forgive and find a place of grace and mercy in our relationships. Before you move on, um, Charles Swindle, he's an author, and he said, um, if you're looking for the perfect church and you're out there and you find it, he said, please don't join it because you'll ruin it. <laughs> and that I remember reading that really early in my Christian walk, and, man, it stuck with me because it's so true. We're looking for this perfect thing, and it actually isn't out there. So when we first uh, started praying through the idea of Catalyst, um, the Lord spoke quite clearly to me about this spirit of offence and he said, he's like, Cheryl, you're going to have that. Catalyst is going to have to deal with this spirit of offence. So I'm, I'm preparing you for it. And I remember thinking, oh, like, do we have to? And, um, and, and he said, it's going to come. So we made a decision early on that we wouldn't be maybe like we've been in the past or other churches have been like that you might have even been at, that when we know that there is even an inkling of offence either way, either from us or to somebody else or within the body of different people being offended with each other, that we decided that out of love for the family, for the kingdom of God, that We're we would hunt you speak <laughs> into it. So, and we would, we would be quick to settle things ourselves as well. And I've seen that. I've seen uh, that happen. It's not like in the year that we haven't had issues amongst ourselves, but I think all of us have chosen to take that on board. And it is a really big part of the DNA of this church to, um, if you are offended by something someone has said or done, uh, I would encourage you, you need to fix it. So. Right. Cool. One thing we've noticed, is that God chooses and uses the totally unexpected. That's one lesson that I learned very early on in ministry is that don't judge a book by its cover because God just doesn't operate that way. And I know scripture says that, you know, um, that man judges the outward appearance and God judges the heart. But, you know, when you're looking at a group of people like this and saying, Lord, where are the gifts? It's very easy to look at it from a worldly perspective and say, well, you know, Daryl's a great businessman, he's good with his money, therefore he will be. But it doesn't always work like that, doesn't it? And a lot of times what we've done in churches, we've looked through the congregation, we've said, you know, he's a good businessman, we'll put him in the leadership team and he's this sort of a person, we'll put them. But God doesn't work that way. You know? When you think of when you were called, not many of you were wise by human standards, not many were influential, not many were noble by birth, but God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong, and so on and so on. God, I think, takes great pleasure in taking the unlikely and using them. A funny thing happened a couple of weeks ago. Um, some of us went to the Steve Grace concert at um, Mount Evelyn Church, and after the service had finished, um, the concert had finished, we were just gathering around, chatting, and um, I'm looking across the room and I, I could see this guy. And I'm like, I know him from somewhere. Where do I know him from? Sure, I went to school with him. We're talking 1982, so it's a long way back. I know this guy. I'm sure I know him. So I went over and introduced myself and I said, your name's not... He goes, looked at me, he goes, Wally, Mark Wilson, how are you doing? It was him. 
and we got chatting and got chatting, and then we got down to the usual man talk. So what are you doing with your life? You know, what career have you chosen? And uh, I asked him the question. He said, oh, you know, because I knew he used to live on a farm. He said, no, we had to sell, sell the farm because of the drought. And he said, I'm not doing what I want to do. I'm sharpening knives, but it's making a living. And he, and he turned to me and said, so what are you doing? I said, uh, I'm pastoring a church. This awkward silence went over there and then he burst out laughing. You? You're a pastor? You've got to be kidding. He said, I remember you at school. You used to steal everything. You used to be the most rebellious. You're pastoring a church? I said, yeah, I've actually been pastoring churches for 17 years. He goes, man, that's unbelievable. He said, does everyone at school know that that's what you do? I said, no, I've never been to one of the reunions because I don't think anyone would believe me. And uh, he was just, he was flabbergasted because his view of me and what God could do were totally different things. It's by the grace of God alone, but it's, it was just such a good thing for me. I walk, walked out of there pretty chuffed because I thought, hey, God can do stuff even in my life. And I think Mark shared probably this story before, but just to tie it all together, he, he did end up going back to that school a couple of years ago when we were on the mission field in Fiji. He made contact with the same college and they found out of, his life change and what he was doing and so they actually said would you come back will you come back and talk to our year 11 and 12s or whatever and so he did and he went back there and and they've they've changed a little bit now the kids aren't quite so under the thumb they're relaxed on them a little bit so but it was really great opportunity yeah how's how's this for a great great setup for a preacher right you walk into this auditorium get to speak to all these year 10 11 and 12s and you go can you see that board up there? That's the ducks on a roll. And in 1981, there's a lady there called Sharon Wilson. That's my sister. She was ducks of this school. Now, there should be another board up there, the kids that got expelled from the school, because my name would be on it. <laughs> what a great scenario to come and be able to say, but God was able to change my life. So I got to apologise to the teachers and the leaders of that school because I never thanked them for expelling me and then giving me the grace to come back and to learn hard lessons. But yeah, And hopefully the teachers have learnt as well because they used to always say, gee, you're not like your sister, are you, Wilson? So, you know, the pressure for a kid to be under that kind of pressure year after year, you know, not saying it's right what he did, but I can understand why he did it. Yeah. And so I came across this, um, this thing, um, actually someone had posted it on Facebook the other day and I went, that will be awesome for Sunday's message. So I'm just going to read through it. So do you seriously think God can't use you? Noah was a drunk. Abraham was too old. Isaac was a daydreamer. Jacob was a liar. Leah was ugly. Joseph was abused. Moses had a stuttering problem. Gideon was afraid. Samson had long hair and he was a womanizer. Rahab was a prostitute. Jeremiah and Timothy were too young. David had an affair and he was murdered. Elijah was suicidal. Isaiah preached naked. Jonah ran from God. Naomi was a widow. Job went bankrupt. Peter denied Christ. The disciples fell asleep while they were praying. Martha worried about everything. The Samaritan woman was divorced. Zacchaeus was too small, Paul was too religious, Timothy had an ulcer, and Lazarus was dead. So 
I'm guessing we could fall into one of those, surely, somewhere along the line. So I think, you know, God's saying, don't tell me you, I can't use you. Of course I can use you. If you give me the chance, I'll show you how I can use you. So it's a matter of don't, don't worry about the things that you're not. Think about the things that you can be under the power and the, and the might of God's Holy Spirit. And the last one we wanted to share with you is that I always think the best is yet to come. You know, because 47 is the new 27 now or something like that, isn't it? That's how it works. Yeah, but I really do. I'm, I believe it's a biblical principle because God says, you know, the good work that he started in you, he's going to bring it to completion. So I hope now I'm closer to being what God wants me to be than I was when I first started. Like there is a sense in your journey that you do get wiser and you do approach things differently and you get to a place in your life where you can enjoy it more because you've got the maturity and the skills to face life in a different way. And, and, and hopefully that's the journey in God, that we're going from one degree of glory to another and we're growing in God and we're growing in our capacity to do life and to do it to do it better and I just think you know I love that statement be patient because God isn't finished yet with me or with you you know we're all works in progress but there's a good thing happening and it's great to be part of community where we celebrate what God is doing in each other's lives and we spur each other on we want the best for each other you know the world is so good at tearing down the tall poppies and you know trying to root for the underdog, but when he gets there, we, we pull him down. We need to have a different counterculture to that, where we want the very best for people and we encourage one another and we keep one another accountable and, and we really see our kids nurtured and our teenagers shaped and our young marrieds growing in God and, and as we journey together as a family that we really see God growing, in the, growing us in the midst of all that. There's a book I've been reading and uh, the motto of this church, I love it, I don't think I'd use it because it would offend too many people and we don't want to offend people because they'll take offence and then they'll leave. Their motto of the church is go big or go home. Sounds a bit in your face when you first read it. But their point is not so much we're going to do things bigger and better. It's just be the best you can be in God. Don't be a pew sitter. Try something. You know, the people that, that, that fail are normally the ones that are trying something, and that's a good thing, that God really wants us to be engaged in stepping out with him. I really believe the best is yet to come. The best is yet to come for us individually, for our churches, for this nation, and for this world. Because if we really walk in intimacy with God and we're filled with the Spirit, we have a missionary heart, we have a heart for the lost, then God is going to do awesome things in our midst. Honestly believe the best is yet to come because if it's not, then we should give up now and just live in the glory days that we had in the past. But I believe there's better things ahead, better days ahead, better opportunities ahead. God's going to do great and mighty things. You want to add anything to that? Then let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for, for life. Lord, that you've given each one of us an opportunity to, to leave a, an imprint on this world, be that in our marriages, be that in our careers, be that in parenting our children. Lord, there's so many facets of our life that, that you can use us in to, to shape and to mould and, and to be a person of incredible influence. And Lord, 
I want to thank you for each and every one that's here today, Lord, the, the uniqueness that you've put in them, that your design and your DNA is within them. And, Father, that means there's an incredible potential for greatness. And, Father, I don't know where people are in their life walk with you. I know there'll be many that are struggling, people that are looking for jobs, people that are about to lose their jobs, people that have got illness, people that have got marriage struggles. Lord, there's always an obstacle in front of us. There's always hurdles in life. But, Father, I thank you that you give us the grace, you give us the strength, you give us the power, you give us the wisdom to choose what's right before you. And, Father, I want to pray this year that this would be a year of great growth in people's lives. That, Lord, people would choose to be a better parent, to be a better friend, to be a better husband or wife, to, to put things in place where they're stretched and they grow where they're matured, and Lord, we give you permission to knock off some of those rough edges in our life, to, to work on some of those things in our personality or character that may not be the best that they can be. Lord, I want to thank you that as your children, you're a father who will always teach us and train us and equip us to be the best that we can be. That's why we worship you. That's why we honor you, because you're a God that's so interested in every part of our life. Lord, I want to praise you for the journey that you've got us each on, individually and as a church. And Lord, we just ask you to take us on deeper and further into the things of God. That, Father, you would mould and shape each one of us in our community here and the influence that we might have and make it something that gives you great glory and honour. That, Father, we would be the best friend we could be, the best disciple we could be, the best parent we could be, that Lord you'll teach us, you'll grow us. Father we thank you for that privilege today and we thank you that we we worship a God for whom nothing's impossible. What a privilege it is Father to know you, not just to know about you but to know you and to know your spirit in our life and your power in the present, to know you in the now and to worship and honour you and to know that in this life that cripples so many and shipwrecks so many, that we can rise above, that we are more than conquerors in Christ, that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What an awesome God that you are, Father. We worship you today. We choose that life to be moulded and shaped by the potter, to be that clay in your hands, to be something and someone of incredible substance. That's your plan for us, Lord, and we celebrate that together today. In Jesus' name, amen. If you'd like to be upstanding, we're going to sing one more song.